Grace, mercy, and peace makes you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Probably not real familiar with the book of Sirach, sometimes called Ecclesiasticus. It's not one I'm especially familiar with either. It comes in what we often call the Apocrypha. I'm sure, though, Jesus would have been quite familiar with it. It was written 200 years before he was born. I don't usually look at it too closely, almost ever. And yet, as I was preparing for this sermon, one of our Lutheran Church fathers kept mentioning this passage in connection with our gospel reading. And finally, after the third time, I'm like, maybe I should read this chapter so I know what the world he's talking about. And as I read it, I was struck by the irony of the whole thing. Sirach 38 starts with saying that from God comes healing, and that doctors and medicine is a good gift from God. And in our chapter, we have a woman who we know from the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, spent all that she had on doctors who did nothing but cause her more suffering. And then, right after that, after the talk of doctors, he says, everyone's going to die. There's nothing you can do about it. Here's how you should mourn properly. Don't be overly dramatic in your grief. Don't let it last too many days. Because everyone's going to die that's the end of it. When our passage, both those things come together, right? We've got someone who suffered under the hands of doctors, got no help from them, but could only find help in Jesus. Then we have someone whose daughter did die, and yet death did not have the final word. Because Jesus just went to her, grabbed her hand, and said, get up, and she got up. And I think it's almost, I shouldn't even say almost, I think it's rather intentional. These passages would have been well known to the people, and yet Jesus kind of flips them all on their heads. He is the one, as Sirach says at the beginning, from God comes all healing. And when the doctors utterly fail, he is the one who can step in and actually do something about it. And when death comes, it does not have the final say, it does not have the last word. Jesus does. Let's look at these two healings and all that they have to teach us. I find the context for these and some of the details rather fascinating. They're rather helpful to understand the bigger picture of what's going on. First of all, I think it's important to point out, and we shouldn't forget this, because it's easy for us, I think, to not realize how astounding this is. But as, as we approach the celebration of the Incarnation, Christmas, it's morning we start thinking about it a little bit. Jesus, God in the flesh, was just there in the street, walking in their midst. It was just there. The crowds were throwing around. The Son of God is just walking among them. And why is he there? He's there because he promised to be God with us. God among us. God in our flesh, so that he might heal. So he might cleanse and bring life. Let's first look briefly at the woman with the flow of blood. I'm going to tell you why it's important in a minute, but she had this flow for 12 years, which is significant in the context of the passage. But don't miss how terrible this is for her. Again, we're far removed from these things. We don't think about it too much. But this means she is unclean. She is impure. Everything she sits on becomes unclean and impure. Everyone she touches becomes unclean and impure, according to Leviticus. Which means she's cut off from worship. She can't go to the feasts and festivals. This had to have been quite a lonely and miserable 12 years. 
She goes from doctor to doctor, and they do nothing to help her. The blood won't stop. She's in a constant state of uncleanness, a constant state of impurity under the law, and nobody can help her. Nobody. And yet she hears about Jesus. She says to herself, if I just touch even the hem of his garment, I don't even need to talk to him. I don't even need to bother him. If I can just get there and touch the hem of his garment, all will be well. I will be saved. We'll look at this more later, but when Jesus says your faith has made you well, the word there is saved. You can blame the King James Version for all the English versions saying it's made you well. The physical healing is a sign of her spiritual salvation. All she has is touches and she's healed. At that moment, she's cleansed. Rather than Jesus becoming impure and unclean, which is what should have happened, that's what happens when someone who is unclean and pure touches someone. Instead, the opposite happens. She is not only cleansed, but she is saved and made completely whole. And then we have Jairus' daughter. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us his name, but Mark and Luke do, so we know his name. He has a daughter. She is 12 years old. Again, explain that in a moment. And she's dead. In fact, the other passages, it's interesting, when he, when he comes originally, she's not quite dead, and then she dies while Jesus is busy helping this other woman. And they say, quit bothering him, she's dead. And he's filled with great sorrow. And yet, he too has great faith. He trusts that Jesus can actually do something for his little girl. In fact, Jesus says, it's not a big deal, she's just sleeping. And what happens? They mock him, they ridicule him. How dumb are you? She's obviously dead, she's not sleeping. How could you say such a thing? Who do you think you are? Well, he shows who he is. Walks into the room, takes her by the hand, and death flees. It's gone. Jesus is laughing at death. They think Jesus is ridiculous. They're mocking him, and yet Jesus is mocking and ridiculing death. He who sits in heaven laughs at these things. It's nothing for him to perform these miracles. He does this. Now, the context right before this not too many verses before this. There's a discussion of the bridegroom and the brides, Jesus and his church. And you should be on the lookout anytime you come across that language in the Gospels. Very shortly following that, there's going to be an event with a woman who is representative of the church. And in fact, here we have two women. When she clings to our Lord's hem of his robe, you should think back to Ruth, who lifts the hem. Boaz's garment lays down at his feet. When you hear the number 12, 12 years old, 12 years of suffering, you should also think about the church. In Revelation chapter 21, John is brought to a high mountain, and he's put on that high mountain, and he's told to look at the Lamb's bride. The Lamb's bride is this glorious city coming down from heaven. And how is that glorious bride described? Well, in many ways, but the number 12 is used 12 times to describe this glorious bride. So we have here a picture of what Christ does, not just for these women, 
But what he has come as a bridegroom to do for the bride, his church, that is what he's come to do for all of us. And what has he come to do for all of us? He's come to cleanse us from sins and give us resurrection life. So I think the first thing we need to learn from this is we need to learn to flee to Christ for cleansing. It doesn't matter how filthy you think you are in your sins, no matter how unclean you believe you are, even rightly so, it doesn't matter how unworthy you feel. It doesn't matter how much of an outcast you are from others. You are, like the woman and like Jairus, to flee to Christ for cleansing. Zechariah 13, we hear in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Of course, we see that happen even on the cross, as Christ's side is pierced and water and blood flow out. And as we have depicted on the painting over there, the water goes into the baptismal font and the blood into the chalice. That's why even on our crucifix up here, if you look closely at his side, you have water and blood flowing out even from that one. This is what's going on. So in 1 John, John will tell us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In John chapter 1, we read, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace, or grace upon grace. Christ takes your impurity upon himself. He takes all of your uncleanness, all of your filth, and he's covered with it as he hangs there on the cross, taking them, burying them in your place. Why? So that he can cleanse you. He took them away that he might cleanse and wash you. So too, related to this, we flee to Christ for cleansing and we flee to him for refuge, for salvation. In Exodus 15, our Lord says, I am the Lord God, your healer, or we could say your physician, the one who heals you. Right? In Acts 4, we hear, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We flee to him because he freely gives forgiveness, life, and salvation. He's paid it in full. The woman in our text spent all that she had, every last cent, trying to find healing. And she got nothing except for more suffering, more pain. It didn't end. And yet she goes to Jesus in an instant, freely given to her, is the full restoration of body and soul. He gives it away freely because he's paid for it all. He's earned it all. He's done all things for it. And so we do have a physician who is able to heal you in both body and soul. He is more than capable of doing that. So even though others may mock and make fun of you for believing such a thing, even though they may ridicule the idea that you can go to Jesus and get physical healing as well as spiritual healing, we can go to him in full confidence. In fact, we are to hurry to him, to run to him, to flee to him for these things. But I wouldn't even stop there. I mean, consider. 
Jesus has the power to restore your body and soul. He has the power to raise you up from the dead so that you need not fear it, as we're told in Isaiah. What about all the other problems of life? Right? If you're weighed down, if you're burdened, if you're suffering under family issues, whether it's between your spouse or with your kids, or maybe it's at the job, or maybe you're suffering under financial burden, and it feels like you're drowning in debt. It doesn't matter what that thing is that you came in this morning bearing that made you feel unworthy, that made you weighed down and stressed out and burdened. Jesus can take care of that too. He cares about those things. Right? So we hear in Scripture to cast all our cares upon him. Why? Because he actually, truly does care for you. Not only does he care for you, but he is the one who is able and willing to actually help. He is your great physician. He heals the ills of body and soul. Out of his great love and concern for you. And the picture here in this passage in particular, is of a wonderful, caring husband doing all things for the sake of his wife. Right? That's the picture we have. We have the one who sacrifices all things to make sure his wife, his bride, is protected, that she's cared for, that she has all that she needs. And so where do we find these things? How do we touch the hem of his garment? How do we make sure that he grabs our hand and raises us up? Where does he promise to be among us in our midst? We should know that answer. Right? We know this. It's in his word and sacraments. That's where he comes to you today and does the very things he did for them, but here in this place for you. Right? Where are you cleansed from all those sins, all that filth? It's in the waters of baptism. That's where they're all washed away. We just sang about it. God's own child, I gladly say it. Why? I'm baptized into Christ. It's all been taken care of. It's all been washed away. We heard in the words of the absolution that all your sins are forgiven, they're cleansed, they're washed away, all the ones you brought in from this week. In the Lord's Supper, he'll even give you his very body and blood. Why? So that he might feed you and strengthen you. So you might have all that you need in body and soul to be strengthened for this coming week. The Bible gives us, again, wonderful imagery with this bridegroom and bride imagery to explain this to us. In Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Ephesians 5. Christ does all this that he might present her, his church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Christ comes as the bridegroom who wants to rescue and redeem and take care of you, his church. Well, then how do we make sure we rightly receive that medicine? How do we make sure that we have it? If it's here in this place, how do we make sure it's ours? 
Well, Jesus answers that in our text as well. It's directly related to what we heard just a couple weeks ago. It's all by faith alone. We go to him believing that he's actually going to receive us and that he's going to heal us, that he's going to cleanse us and give us life. Now, I've mentioned physical ills quite a bit because it's very relevant to our passage. But he did not come primarily for physical ills. And for various reasons, sometimes he lets you suffer under physical ills. But he primarily comes that he may give you spiritual healing and health. And the first thing we have to do is like the woman who spent 12 years chasing around doctors who didn't do anything, we have to lose hope in all others that there's any other way of salvation. Including giving up on ourselves and our own natural powers. So in Isaiah 55, we hear, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why do we waste our time and energy on money thinking these things will help and bring us the spiritual healing we need when they're actually not going to do that thing? Only Christ alone is. And we receive all that he has for us through faith. Now sometimes Christ has to drive us to himself. He does this right through the law. As Lutherans, we know that quite well. God uses the law to bring us to an end of ourselves, show us our sin, and drive us to Christ. But he can also use the distress and affliction and trouble and, yes, even the physical ailments of your life to drive you to him. In fact, Luther will go so far to say that if it wasn't for the crosses, the afflictions, the tribulation in your life, you would abandon Christ altogether. That those things force you to run to him, to flee to him, to find in him cleansing, refuge, salvation, and healing. The problem, though, is for us, we're full of mixed emotions. We're full of doubts and faith. And that creates problems for us. Our sinful flesh wants us to doubt that Jesus can do anything about these problems. Wants us to doubt that he can bring plenty. That he can bring healing. That he can bring life to whatever that situation is. He wa- Our sinful flesh wants you to think that you are impure. That you are unworthy of all that Christ has for you. That you might as well just give up. Because not only can no one else help you, but neither can Christ. And yet, what does Christ tell us? All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In Hebrews 4, we hear, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in the time of needs. What did we hear in Isaiah, in Old Testament reading this morning? That we go to him in sorrow and sighing, flee away, because he is the God who does what? Who comforts you. Who gives you that which you need. And so you can go to him boldly, with certainty, with surety. Why? Because he said so. He's promised. If you come to him, that he will not cast you out. It's interesting, the parallel passages to our Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? And he looks around. And he doesn't do it to embarrass the woman. He doesn't do it because he doesn't know what's happened. 
He does it because he wants her to be able to come boldly to him and say it was me so he can declare to her that your faith has indeed saved you. It's all good now. That's what Christ, Christ promised. Your faith has saved you. We hold two things to be equally true. Christ has saved you and your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you because it clings to Christ who has done all things for you. There's no conflict between these things. Christ is received through faith. Right? Just as we heard just like two or three weeks ago, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. Why? Because faith receives Christ. That's why. So as we consider this text, as you contemplate this text throughout the day, know that Christ, the bridegroom, has indeed come and still comes right now to cleanse, heal, and give life to his bride. That's what he does as the faithful bridegroom. As I considered how to end this sermon, I thought Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 beautifully brought all of these things together. Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. The peace of God, which passes on our sin, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.